1: Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick
0: Phillips, and now here's your host, Nick Phillips.
1: Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking to Representative Dave Greenspan about what's going on in Columbus, Ohio. Dave, thank you for joining us, as always.
2: Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. It's great to be on on a, on a beautiful fall day.
1: As uh, yeah, the year is flying by. But tell us, what's been going on in Columbus?
2: Well... You know, as, as the summer is winding down and, you know, we've always talked about this misnomer of what recess means. You know, recess just means we're not in session or committee. It doesn't mean legislative work is not getting done. Uh, as we're winding down, we've actually started back having committee uh, hearings. Uh, this was our, our second week back with committee hearings. Uh, I actually have a bill um, that I've joined with Representative Juanita Brent of Cleveland, uh, which is the uh, driver's license reinstatement and amnesty program if you remember last General Assembly, we, um, Representative John Barnes and I, joint sponsored that bill. Uh, It was passed. Uh, The bill was a pilot program, which ran for six months, which expired this past July 31st. And it provided those who had a suspended driver's license who had met all their court-ordered obligations and uh, just could not pay the BMV reinstatement fees an opportunity to either pay a reduced fee or if they were able to um, prove their indigency, through um, being a participant in the SNAP program, that their BMV fees were waived. This bill was supported by the uh, Department of uh, Public Safety and the BMV. And um, through the program in the six months it operated, there were tens of thousands of Ohioans that actually positively benefited as a result of the bill. And over 7,500 actually had full driving privileges reinstated which means that those are 7500 people or the tens of thousands that were possibly impacted by other aspects of the bill that are able to drive legally. which means they are able to apply for a driver's license they're able to obtain insurance and more importantly they're able to either maintain or seek employment if driving was a requirement or a condition of their employment so that program expired july 31st um, in the, in the budget that we passed we extended the program through the end of the year Uh, however because the bill um, requires a 90-day period from when it was signed to take effect there's a gap right now which will end in in, uh, mid-october in which the program although authorized cannot accept applications but from uh, mid-october through the end of the year the program will be back up and operating what the bill that Representative brent and i introduced that we just vehicle
1: Statement issue based upon uh, how many people out uh, licenses. You, you mentioned in the past uh, a ratio here in Cuyahoga County. How many drivers in Cuyahoga County do not have uh, license or driving privileges?
2: Yeah. So, so the numbers there are about eight million driver drivers licenses issued in Ohio. One million of them, one in eight is suspended, and in the urban counties, it's as high as one
1: in four. So that's 25% of the drivers. Technically, Cuyahoga County being an urban county can have a lot. Hopefully, this change in the law will help these people get back on, at least so we can have them insured. Because if they they do get their license back, they do have to um, obtain insurance, I would imagine, before they can get their license back.
2: Well, you cannot get a license unless you have insurance. Um, I'm sorry, you cannot get insurance unless you have a license. So um, this makes them eligible to have insurance. Now, there is a provision in the bill, um, which we're amending in, we thought uh, it it should have been included in the original bill, that this is a a one-bite-at-the-apple proposal. So if you take advantage of the program once in your lifetime, that's the only time you're going to have an opportunity to take advantage of the program. So if, let's say, that you go through the program and you're eligible to get insurance and you fail to do so, and you get pulled over and your license is suspended for failure to have insurance, you will not be eligible for this program. So we're hoping Mm -hmm. that that folks who take advantage of it will look at it for what it is, which is an opportunity to to drive legally and to maintain and secure employment.
1: Some people out there might uh, have a suspension because of a conviction and also have a suspension because of a refusal. Uh, to take a, a breath test, and also have a yeah. suspension for failure to meet the financial responsibility requirements. Uh, would this law allow them to get rid of all three of these simultaneous suspensions?
2: Well, so so the bill does have some restrictions. If if the suspension is is if if the suspension was due to drug, alcohol, or weapons charges, you are not eligible for the program so we do have some restrictions and provisions around it there are over 30 offenses to which you can have your license suspended and so we are now that the data is coming in since the program just ended you know July 31st just about 5 weeks ago 6 weeks ago we're we're working with DPS and DMV to look at the offenses and to see if there's an opportunity there to to continue to have those as suspendable offenses or maybe if some aren't aren't uh, necessary so we're still looking at that but there are there are certain provisions that you are not eligible for the program. We were we wanted to be very explicit about that.
1: The uh, the people who just forget to uh, renew their license and they let it go for a year or two and, and don't have a license, uh, this doesn't apply to them, does it? Because they're not trying to trying to get reinstatement. No, no, it does not. Okay, does very not. good. Well, what else is happening in Columbus?
2: Well, you know, as, as we're starting to crank back up, um, you know, we're starting to um, to have more committee hearings this week. Uh, we are scheduled next week to start back with session. So there are bills that that are, are in the pipeline that are that are in 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 the House, what's are what's referred to as being below the black line, meaning bills that have passed out of committee and are waiting to, to be placed on the floor agenda. Um, I have one of those. So hopefully that bill will move. Uh, and be placed on the floor so we can start work in the Senate. Um, you know, a number of members are introducing various bills, dealing with various subjects, and working various bills to to see that they move through. As we've talked about in the past, uh, I have been working on the sports gaming piece of legislation in Ohio. Uh, we have a representative, Kelly and I, out of Cincinnati. She and I have three amendments that we believe will be uh, amended into the bill. They're not substantive, but they're just some 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 more technical issues that we want to clarify uh we believe they will be introduced in uh, in about 10 days and then we'll have one further hearing and send the bill to the floor and hopefully we'll be able to start negotiating with our colleagues in the senate to uh to pass that piece of legislation uh indiana at the beginning of september just began uh, its legal sports betting operations and with that with indiana pennsylvania and west virginia um Michigan and Kentucky are the only two with with us that have not yet legalized it. Michigan and Kentucky have legislation that's pending. So they don't go back in the session until later in the year. We're hoping that we'll be able to uh, – this isn't a race to get something done for the sake of getting something done, but we are hopeful that we'll be able to to move the sports gaming legislation um, out of the House very quickly and then start the discussions in the
1: Senate. Yeah, and the discussion is about sports uh, betting. Uh, is there an estimate as to how much more revenue that could bring into the state?
2: Yeah, th- there, are, there are estimates that range from from as as much or as little as ten, 10 million uh, to a hundred million once the industry becomes more mature. Um, what will happen is, is once we get it up and running, and it'll be a, a, you know a progressive uh, scenario as to how we're able to implement sports gaming in Ohio. But uh, initially, it's believed that that of the current illegal betting that's going on right now, that 20% or so will immediately migrate over to illegal betting format, 20% of that, which is where we believe we'll probably get to around around 10 million. And then as we continue, as the industry continues to mature in Ohio, we believe more and more of those folks will come off the illegal market and come into the legal market, which will obviously bring in um, a whole bunch of consumer protection issues for those folks and also the benefit to the state for education will, will benefit as well.
1: Well, that's interesting. You mentioned the illegal betting uh, and what comes to mind are the traditional bookies, uh, the people who collect the money and pay the odds and the wagers and the wins and the losses and all of that. So that that is still something that goes on quite a bit, I'm assuming.
2: It does. It does. And, and what? What will happen with this bill, it it clearly states that in order to offer sports gaming in Ohio, you must be a a sports gaming agent. And the only way to become a sports gaming agent is to be licensed through the Lottery Commission. So if if someone is operating a sports book, uh, clearly it will be defined that, uh, number one, it's already illegal. But it will be more clearly defined that uh, only sports gaming licensed sports gaming agents shall offer sports betting. Very, so, very, um, very good.
1: We're, hold on. Hold, hold, hold that thought. We're going to take a short break. We're talking to State Representative Dave Greenspan about what's going on in Columbus. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate.
0: No no
3: Children. The product of a married couple who were once in love.
4: Unfortunately, sometimes the marriage does not work and parents... Hi, I'm Pat Lamb. Select Insurance Services is a family-run business and your personal shopper for auto, home, and business insurance. Plus, I'm Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. I think you'll agree, insurance is confusing. But at the same time, it's very important to your financial security. We believe insurance should be secured through a professional. Why? Because one wrong click in the do-it-yourself plan could cost you everything. Our approach stands out because we ask the right questions, listen to your personal situation, and share our knowledge to close potential coverage gaps. This is an experience a do-it-yourself plan can't provide. Did you know there could be a coverage gap when you drive someone else's car? So call us today, 440-237-8555, or check us out at Select insservice.com 440-237-8555 or select insservice.com hi this
1: is nick phillips host of the advocate pat lamb and select insurance have been my insurance agents for years wonderful to work with and never a hassle call pat lamb at select insurance for your insurance needs
0: when you need passionate and thought-provoking insights am 1420 is your answer
5: at 440-237-3338 for the very best in dental care.
3: You didn't plan it this way. You spent your entire life being careful protecting your body and staying healthy when the carelessness of another changes your life forever. You need to know what's expected of you to prove your claim. You further have been changed forever. Know it's up to you to make your case. The lawyers at Phillips and Millie together have over 80 years of experience. If you have a case or think you may, call the law firm of Phillips and Millie at 440-243-2800.
1: Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Tonight we're talking to State Representative Dave Greenspan, who's updating us on what's going on in Columbus, and we're talking about sports betting and uh, basically how you can become a registered sports betting agent with the Lottery Commission. Dave, thank you for joining us. Sure, thank you. Hey, what, uh, As I just sort of mentioned, somewhat facetiously, how does a person become... A registered sports agent or betting agent for sports betting. Can 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 well, you, be, that, can you be a bookie now and uh, change your ways?
2: No, it, it's it's not it's not as easy as somebody filling out an application and paying you know a hundred dollars and 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 boom, you're a sports gaming agent. The the uh, the lottery commission will create the rules uh, for that. Uh, primarily, I uh, suspect, as we're seeing in other states, it's not going to be you know the small you know. Phillips and Green and LLC that creates a sports book it's going to be the the large players the MGMs the hills the pens you know um, the groups that are already engaged in the business remember there's a lot of risk involved this is not just um, as simple as you know you know taking odds on a game and, and especially because the facilities you have to keep in mind the only facilities right now that sports under our bill that sports gaming can take place is in the casinos racinos um, vets and fraternal halls, and mobile and online. So if you're a casino or casino operator, you obviously have your ability to apply in. Uh, the, the fee is $100,000 in order to, to apply in to be a sports gaming agent uh, and operate in those facilities. And the bill is very specific in the, in the, in the um, vets and fraternal halls that you must strike, you shall strike a relationship with a licensed sports gaming agent, meaning one of the, the sports books, There is an opportunity for, there are opportunities for individuals to to come in and what's called be skins or, you know, be mobile operators. But those mobile operators have to operate through one of the sports gaming agents, which primarily will be the casinos, racino operators themselves. So it's not as easy as just, you know, somebody coming in and saying, I want to do this, pay a a, a fee, even if it's $100,000, and believe that they're going to be a sports book operating in the state of
1: Ohio. So you might uh, possibly see it, a local VFW uh an operation sanctioned or run by the MGM casino?
2: What, what, what you would see there would be a single kiosk uh, there to which you would have to. So here's how you would, if you want, the only way that would happen, that you'd be able to, to place a wager at a, at a vet or fraternal hall, is that you would have to register online and get set up an online account. And you would basically, like, like a, an ATM machine, put some form of identification in there that it knows it's you. You would then put in a, a code, you know, a password, and then you'd be able to wager that way. Uh, your, your account would be pre-populated with money and any winnings would then be automatically deposited into your pre-populated account, almost like a PayPal account. So you effectively would be setting up a state, for a better term, a state wagering PayPal account. You would fund it and the money would go back into that account. And then you would be able to transfer those funds from your lottery, your, your, your sports gaming, um, account into your personal bank account so there'd be no transfer of funds mm-hmm. no open ha- passing of cash in a in a a vet or fraternal hall that has a a kiosk in it it is all electronically functioning
1: I, i'm assuming the vetter uh the fraternal organization would be getting some type of uh, part of of uh, the activity as far as fees
2: they do they they would get the same the same the same um, amount of compensation that they get now for operating a as a lottery retailer they will receive that same compensation for uh, having sports betting in their facility.
1: Okay, so the basically the structure is all set up already. Just uh, integrating this newer wider aspect of, uh, of gambling.
2: It is. It is. The, the the and and that that set aside the constitutional authority that the, that the lottery commission has over any other um any other regulatory body whether it be the casino control or racing control commission a uh, racing authority is the lottery already has the infrastructure in place um the intranet is in place to be compliant with the wire act to be able to transact sports betting effectively it is a it is viewed as another lottery game um that the lottery commission would offer uh, through its through
1: its infrastructure oh. Well, we'll keep an eye on that and see what happens. Hey, real quick other question. Uh, I know we've been talking about from month to month the front license plate situation in Ohio. Is that uh, still scheduled to go into effect next year?
2: July 1st it's scheduled to go into effect. Um, You know, there was a commission, a a, a study committee that was created in the transportation budget uh, to which I have been named as a a co-chair with senator mccauley in the senate he's out of uh, fulton county uh, ohio uh, to co-chair the committee uh, there are 11 items that we are to report out on and one of which is uh, and these are recommendations as to how to address uh, i'll refer to it as a front vehicle identifier um i i don't believe you're going to see a front license plate as we currently know it uh back in ohio but i believe that there is an opportunity and. and And I am supportive of an alternative form of a a front vehicle identifier for law enforcement. Uh, So we are going to start committee hearings uh, in the fall. Um, Senator McCauley and I are working out the details now. And we will have hearings. And by December of next year, December of 20, we are required by law to submit out a report. Although I believe he and I, our intent is to do one before that.
1: Uh, A question, just a practical question, beginning in July of next year. Are people then to take off their front license plate and uh, recycle it i assume
2: they they are at that point they are legally um, afforded the opportunity to do whatever they see fit if they want to leave it on there's no there's nothing that prohibits them. It doesn't say it shall come off and no longer be afforded you know as as a front vehicle identifier. It just says that it shall no longer be required to be placed on the front you yeah. know a front license plate shall be
1: required. Well, very interesting. Well, let us know if there are any big changes coming up. Otherwise, we'll wait till July of next year. Uh, well, do different well do. different topic finances. How's the state doing as far as uh, revenues coming in and, and how we're meeting our budgetary projections?
2: Yeah, revenue revenues are coming in. We we just got a report uh, earlier this week. Uh, revenues uh, month over month, um, and and year over year. I'm sorry, year over year are performing well above above uh, above expectations, which is good because, remember, there was a discussion during the budget process, you know, whose revenue projections are we going to use, the the um, LSC projections or OBMs projections, and the actual numbers are exceeding both. So uh, revenues are strong, which is good. It's good for our economy. Our unemployment rate right now sits at 4%, which is the lowest it's been in in a long time. And we would expect those numbers, and we're hoping those numbers go down as we're starting to see some some federal unemployment numbers continue to to trend downward. And uh, we'd like to get in that in that th- in the three range, and hopefully we'll be able to do so. You know, within the next month or so. Well, so and I would suspect mm-hmm. as we get into our seasonal business, you know, season with Christmas shopping and so forth, we'll see the unemployment rate continue to drop.
1: Continue to drop. With regard to the increased uh, and, and the performance above expectations for income uh, what are some of the uh, contributing uh, issues that are, are causing that is it is it all uh, increase in, in job and uh, in different businesses in, in the state
2: well a, a lot of it you know a lot of it is sales tax driven a lot of it is, is payroll tax driven and I believe as you were starting to see a tightening of the job market unemployment rate keeps going down that uh, wages are going up. Wages are going up because of supply and demand. There's a, there's a demand for employees, and there's becoming a le- less and less supply because the employment rate is going down and more people are entering the workforce. And, conver- and so as we're, what we're seeing happening is that wages are rising, thus payroll taxes are increasing, uh, and also consumer confidence seems pretty strong. So the more people um, earn, the more they contribute to the growth in the economy. So it's a, it's a twofold effect when it comes to state revenue.
1: Well, that's uh, that's sort of an upward trend. How long have we been experiencing this uh, stability?
2: We, I, I would have to go back and look specifically, but I believe, um, since I've been tracking it, since I've been in the legislature, that we have had continual month, you know, year over year, month over month growth in our in our um, revenue versus projections. There may have been. I have to caveat that without having the data in front of me. It was a great question. kind of caught me off guard. There may have been a month or two where we might not have met projections, but I believe we've always been higher than, than the previous year's revenues.
1: Well, that's excellent news because that just gives us more confidence about stability in the economy and a solid future for being here in Ohio. So, well, and yes, well, yes. looking forward to that. Well, uh, State Representative David Greenspan, thank you so much, as always, for joining us on a monthly basis here, giving us an update of what's going on in Columbus. And uh, we'll be well, back with you next month.
2: Great. Well, thank you. I, I truly appreciate the opportunity every month.
1: Oh, Likewise here. Well, thank you so much. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away.
4: Select Insurance Services is a family-run business and your personal shopper for auto, home, and business insurance. Plus, I'm Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. I think you'll agree, insurance is confusing. But at the same time, it's very important to your financial security. We believe insurance should be secured through a professional. Why? Because one wrong click in the do-it-yourself plan could cost you everything. Our approach stands out because we ask the right questions, listen to your personal situation, and share our knowledge to close potential coverage gaps. This is an experience a do it yourself plan can't provide. Did you know there could be a coverage gap when you drive someone else's car? So call us today 440 237 8555 or check us out at SELECT inSservice.com 440-237-8555, or www.selectinsservice.com.
1: Hi, this is Nick Phillips, host of The Advocate. Pat Lamb and Select Insurance have been my insurance agents for years. Wonderful to work with and never a hassle. Call Pat Lamb at Select Insurance for your insurance needs.
0: WHKradio.com is the answer for you and your burning questions. Listen online to AM 1420 The Answer for the latest news, sincere opinions, and profound insights at whkradio.com.
3: You didn't plan it this way. You spent your entire life being careful protecting your body and staying healthy when the carelessness of another changes your life forever. You need to know what's expected of you to prove your claim. You further have been changed forever. Know it's up to you to make your case. The lawyers at Phillips and Millie together have over 80 years of experience. If you have a case or think you may, call the law firm of Phillips and Millie at 440-243-2800.
5: More than just a dentist, Dr. Carl Hedgy provides dental treatments for occlusions, TMJ problems, and for aesthetic rehabilitation. In dental practice for over 30 years, Dr. Hedgy has provided state-of-the-art dental treatment for all of his patients. Dr. Carl Hedgy is skilled at treating and resolving complicated dental problems. Located across from the North Royalton High School, call Dr. Hedgy's office for an appointment or visit his website at drhedgy.com. That's Dr. Carl Hedgy, H-E-G-Y-I at 440-237-3338 for the very best in dental care.
4: Welcome
1: back Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. If you've ever been called for jury duty or you had a case before a court and had to face a jury, you'll know that uh, jury trials are, are, are something of an event. And we're going to talk to an expert on jury trials. We're talking... About the jury crisis, which is a new book by Jury Sherrod, Mr. Sherrod, thank you for joining us.
6: You're welcome. I'm happy to be here.
1: Yes, where are you calling from tonight?
6: I'm in Pasadena, California.
1: Oh, very good. Uh, We just saw your beautiful city during the Rose Bowl parade. But uh, that—that is a beautiful city. That—that being said, we're up here in Cleveland, Ohio, the land of ice and snow. So. You're uh, you're much.
6: Uh, I've been at the Rock and Roll Museum before.
1: Good, good. Well, that that's a wonderful place. But you know, getting down to business, um, you're a jury consultant, and you wrote a book called The Jury Crisis. I am. Crisis. Uh, I'm a trial lawyer, and before the interview, we talked a little bit about about that. Your role as a trial consultant. Can you tell us a little bit about your background?
6: Yeah, I'm actually a social psychologist. I have a PhD in psychology taught psychology, written a lot of articles, and a textbook, and in this most recent book on um, the jury crisis. And what jury consultants do are we are hired by attorneys when there's a big case, usually high damages or major consequences at stake. And the goal is to try, the essentially to try the case in advance in a mini version with jurors hired from the, from the venue who match the real venue, who would, would look like the cases you would see on a real jury trial. The whole thing is reenacted with lawyers, and uh, evidence presented on both sides. And the result of the, this, these analyses are to develop um, trial strategies that are persuasive. We often, to do that, we often rewrite the opening statements into narrative form. We also can develop uh, verdict, uh, reliably tested uh, of what ear questions that predict verdict. And then we also often do post-trial jury interviews. So whereas most jury deliberations are never penetrated because they're sacrosanct, there's no clerk taking down notes or anything. I've often, I've just talked to scores and scores of jurors on the phone about their experience of having been a jury, when when they decided in the case to, uh, to go one side or the other and why.
1: Well, on that particular point, what do you find? When do jurors make their decision uh, as a general rule?
6: It's often hard for lawyers especially to accept, but there's pretty good research that most jurors begin making up their mind during early in the opening statements. And having made up their mind, they then use use that to uh, determine what they attend to during the cases in chief. What evidence they focus on, it affects what evidence they recall, what evidence they don't recall. And it's partially because the jurors do this because this is basically what the brain evolved to do, to leap to narrative conclusions instead of doing a slow, objective, rational analysis of evidence. We survived by leaping to conclusions, acting intuitively and instinctually and telling stories
1: and we can't help but do that in jury trials. And and that's uh, human nature, I would imagine. That it, it's hard to it hard to combat that. Uh, I I've been doing jury trials for many years and uh it it's always a mystery. I remember years ago when I was starting out doing jury trials, I used to uh, I think probably part of being uh, the the function of being a young attorney, I I felt I would know what a jury is going to do. Uh, but now it's not so clear. It, it's not really clear what the jury is going to do. It depends on the makeup of the jury, how they're feeling that day, how the judge is feeling that day, how all the witnesses are going to come across, whether they'll come across the same way as they told you they're going to come across. And uh, the the outcome... In our, in our, go ahead. No, I was just going to say the outcome is so unpredictable. In your experiences, is, is there some way to bring that together and make it more predictable?
6: Well, it is unpredictable, and that's why jury trials are vanishing. Um, There's there's just staggering numbers there. That there's only um, less than a half percent of all the civil trials filed in a year reach a jury. That's less than one half of one percent. Just a couple of decades ago, it was twenty percent, twenty-five percent. And for criminal trials, it's less than one percent. So basically, less than a half percent of criminal trials, and less less than one percent of criminal trials, and a half percent of civil trials ever reach a jury. That's been called the vanishing the jury. We are seeing, we're maybe seeing the death of trial by jury in America.
1: Well, I, I can see that uh, happening in a sense because we've been seeing more mediations and uh, some arbitrations. But uh, yeah, cases very rarely get to the courtroom. Uh, at, at one point, I was, uh, I thought it'd be a neat thing to just have uh, a team of lawyers try a simple case in front of a sample jury in the courthouse as part of a bar experiment. And then go right across the hall and do the same trial again in front of another jury, and watch how they do it differently. It's huh. a great experiment. Which, which we have
6: done uh, some post-trial jury interviews, <clears throat> where in, in one case there were this, the same almost this, the same evidence was involved in two different cases, the same lawyers, the same witnesses, um, same allegations, same suffering consequences. The only difference was that, two, that each plaintiff was different. And it was tried in a different part of the country. But in one case, the jurors favored it, voted in favor of the company, a pharmaceutical manufacturer, and the other in favor of the individual. And while the, the both sides put on detailed science cases lasting probably a week to 10 days, the science was over the head of the jurors. They just couldn't recall it. As one juror told me on the phone. He said, I'm not Einstein. I'm as blue-collar as you can get. All the science just went over my head. So that's a problem. That's one of the reasons that um, lawyers and judges, especially lawyers, seem to distrust juries. They think juries can't understand cases. But it turns out that um, if we turn it over to experts, which would be judges, mediators, arbitrators, they bring their own biases. Also, those bias are all, uh, biases are all vested in a single person who's going to be telling a single story about the facts. Whereas in a jury, you're going to have six to 12 people, ideally representing different segments of the community, talking together. Spreading the risk, trying to hammer out a community standards decision.
1: Yeah, have you seen any examples of a blend of having a judge handle most issues and a jury, maybe a special jury, just handling a single issue? Uh, an, an area I would think of. I think it's more Europe. Uh huh. What What happens in Europe?
6: In Europe, I think major cases with major charges, uh, major penalty, major uh, criminal cases, and huge penalty, in a jury trials sometimes go to judges.
1: I mean, sometimes go to go to juries, but generally they go to judges. And, uh, well, I'm thinking like in medical cases here uh, where maybe a jury could be impaneled just to consider the damages issue, something that's maybe something that's based on common experience rather than highly technical scientific data and competing peer review articles and experts and that kind of thing. I, I could understand how people can get lost in that
6: interesting we were hired by a client to do um, to, to do a comparison of jurors versus experts on an overcharging case and a very complicated manufacturing dispute where the manufacturers claiming that its part suppliers had been overcharging for 10 years so we hired a group of um, arbitrators who heard the same evidence and that a group of juries the uh, jury heard they reached different conclusions the arbitrators accepted the fact that the evidence was more or less unclear and unpersuasive, but it was similar to lots of other cases they had handled, so they accepted that they would just trust the evidence. Whereas the jurors, uh, they couldn't understand the evidence, but the way they reasoned was a simple story. If this major sophisticated company had been been being overcharged for 10 years, it was basically their own fault, because why wouldn't they have realized what was going on?
1: Now, when when you approach a case like that, you, you mentioned you guys do some fantastic things to help lawyers. Uh, For example, uh, setting up uh, mock juries, uh, writing opening statements. How how much of this is based on the law and how much is based on, say, psychology?
6: Well, by the time it comes to us, the lawyers have done all the discovery. They've filed all the motions. They've sought summary judgments, and they have to face a jury. So at that point, it becomes much more of a psychological issue than a legal issue. And I think, in fact, that's the problem, that the... um, the lawyers, especially defense lawyers, haven't learned how to uh, talk to a juror. They still talk to the jurors though they're talking to law school professors. For example, we often find that when lawyers write opening statements, it's a, list, a yellow pad list of, say, 100 items, and they just check them off, sort of. Out of order, out of chronological order, out of any kind of narrative order, there's no story, there's no beginning, middle, and end. We transform those into a narrative, usually five themes, beginning, middle, end, that a narrative that organizes the evidence. So we don't ignore the evidence. We just organize it in a way that it's comprehensible. And in doing that, you also set up a series of mental file folders. So this the jurors just have to recall the overall narrative, and then they can, they can uh, fill it with, the, with the, uh, the evidence from these file folders we've established in their brains.
1: Uh, it sounds like the way the human mind works, and that's the best way to do this. We're talking to Drew Sherrod, uh, who is a jury consultant and a Ph.D. in psychology, and he has a book called The Jury Crisis. Uh, it's, it's a great book uh, if you're planning on being a juror, or you have a trial, or you're a lawyer, or working in that system. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with uh, Drew Sherrod to talk more about jury trials and the crisis with regard to jury trials here in the United States. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate. We'll be back after these words.
5: At 440 237 3338 for the very best in dental care.
4: Hi, I'm Pat Lamb. Select Insurance Services is a family run business and your personal shopper for auto, home, and business insurance. Plus, I'm Dave Ramsey's endorsed local provider. I think you'll agree, insurance is confusing, but at the same time, it's very important to your financial security. We believe insurance should be secured through a professional. Why? Because one wrong click in the do it yourself plan could cost you everything. Our approach stands out because we ask the right questions, listen to your personal situation, and share our knowledge to close potential coverage gaps. This is an experience a do-it-yourself plan can't provide. Did you know there could be a coverage gap when you drive someone else's car? So call us today, 440-237-8555, or check us out at Select www.selectinsservice.com 440 237 select
1: or Hi, this is Nick Phillips, host of The Advocate. Pat Lamb and Select Insurance have been my insurance agents for years. Wonderful to work with and never a hassle. Call Pat Lamb at Select Insurance for your insurance needs.
3: Children, the product of a married couple who were once in love. Unfortunately, sometimes the marriage does not work and parents must get divorced. This is traumatic for the children as well as for the adults. The law firm of Phillips & Millie offers advice and representation in family law matters. Remember, your children are entitled to the utmost consideration when mom and dad have to part. Phillips & Millie, your local law firm on the west side of Middleburg Heights. Telephone 440-243-2800.
1: Welcome back to Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. We're talking about jury trials and the validity of having juries in our jury system uh, here in the United States and what's been happening over the past uh, decades concerning fewer and fewer jury trials. With us tonight we have Drury Sherrod, who is an expert on uh, juries. He's a consultant and a Ph.D. in psychology. And, uh, Drew, thank you for joining us.
6: Thank you. I'm enjoying the
1: conversation. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting topic. Uh, as a lawyer, I, I love jury trials because it gives us the time to actually talk to normal people. And uh, sometimes I tell clients, <laughs> if you want to know what your jury is going to look like, go to your local shopping mall and just randomly pick out the first uh, first people you see. They're likely what kind of people will be on your jury. Mm-hmm. And uh, And with that, uh, we all don't hire jury consultants uh, to to do cases, other than very large cases where the uh, economic issues of the case justify the expense. Because what you do is expensive; it's time consuming, it requires a lot of lot of input. Right. Uh, how any thoughts you Both have? Most lawyers. Have? Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, you're going to say most lawyers.
6: No, I was going to say expensive for lawyers and, uh, and, and the uh, consultants as well, especially but the whole trial is enacted with, oh, say, two star lawyers, or a lot of assistant lawyers, um, a lot of witnesses, um, videos. The, the, the mock trials can be quite elaborate productions.
1: Of course. Well, uh, doing a trial is uh, like um, there's a similarity to an iceberg. Uh, the very tip of the iceberg is what you see in the courtroom. And everything below the surface is what goes on for years, getting these cases ready for trial. Right. And uh, when when I talk to business people about litigation, they're facing a controversy. If it's not a multi-million dollar, it's going to put them out of business and ruin them kind of a litigation. Most litigation is very time-consuming, a lot more expensive than they would think, and is sort of the equivalent of having a Certainly. cancer uh, to, that a human would have. So settlement is always a a good thing. Is there any advice that? um, Yeah, we might talk about. Go ahead.
6: I was going to say we might talk about jury selection because we haven't touched on that yet.
1: Well, yeah, tell me about jury selection. That's that's a mystery, and that's what many movies are made of uh, for TV. Tell
6: me.
1: Well, it is. Tell me about jury selection. Uh, And and
6: Doctor Bull, for example, you've seen the TV show. Yeah,
1: people love that show, (laughs) and and they they have. uh, I was called
6: for jury duty once, and the. Uh The prosecuting attorney, um, in her version of the voir dire, she asked the same question to many people. She said, do you promise me you'll keep an open mind, not make up your mind till you've heard all the evidence? And this was asked over and over. And then a um, few, few questions asked about specific attitudes. Yet the research is really very, very clear that what um, the kind of voir dire question that best predicts the juror's verdict is ask them about um, values, lifestyle, adi- uh, lifestyle experiences, attitudes and values that directly relate and mimic the kind of issue that's going on in the jury trial. And different questions would be relevant for different strata of the, the population. So for example, the kind of questions that might predict a plaintiff-oriented versus a defense-oriented, say, older rich white men are different from the questions that would predict plaintiff or defense orientation for young, poor, minority females. And you can almost rank it as a gender and ethnicity and, um, and get several cells and have different predictive questions. So th- that takes a, an extensive amount of research to see what kind of questions best predict verdict as a function of gender and ethnicity.
1: Well, yeah, when and
6: when you, if, when yeah, you yeah, do ahead. that in such a fine-grained way, you can actually get very close to predicting verdict.
1: Well, that, that's uh, like uh, the, the polling before an election, seeing what uh, what what one might do and what the outcome of the election might be. Uh, when we we talk exactly. about uh, the, the juries and jury selection, I, to me it, it's almost a misnomer in a way that you're really deselecting a jury. You get the first jurors in the box, and then you ask them questions, and you try to see whether they're going to be for you or against you. And then uh, we have what's called a preemptive challenge. We have a number of preemptive challenges where we can th- basically just ask a, jury to l- a juror to leave for whatever reason we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think I saw in your book that you recommend that one of the things to improve juries is to limit or get rid of preemptive challenges. Or did I catch that?
6: Yeah, I think so. To either um, to limit them or or to get rid of them. I think it's important to have a jury of your peers, and I think to 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 keep striking um, certain segments of the population just because you think they would be um, they may not favor you. Is, is is turning jurors into you know, representing sort of the bell, middle, middle. And so the, the extremes are often um, not represented even in a jury pool because poor people move too often, their addresses change, they don't get a summons. Rich people tend to ignore the summons. Um, some states, in fact, I think link their, um, whether or not somebody has shown up for jury duty with a with, uh, basic computer, if you're pulled over for traffic violation, the police might find that you have a record of ignoring jury summons and possibly be, uh, they could arrest you. So I think one thing that needs to be done is to make the jury pool much more representative of one's peers, which means different segments of society, different levels of education, income, different ethnicities, as many different demographic variables as you can plug in that matter in the community.
1: Do you think there should be more jurors than, uh, like in Ohio, we have eight jurors in a civil case, 12 in a criminal case. Uh, If we're going to eliminate uh, preemptive challenges, uh, should we have more jurors uh, so that we sort of spread the wealth?
6: You mean more jurors in a panel, like more than eight or more than 12?
1: Correct, correct. Or is that enough, even though we can't sort of weed them out?
6: Yeah, I hadn't thought about that question. I think at some point it makes deliberations ungainly, unwieldy. I think probably those are good. I think twelve is a good number. Plus, I like its sort of history of you know Anglo-Saxon value system right, where right. juries originated during the Magna Carta, nine hundred years ago.
1: Well, that that system, as we're we're talking about new technology and so forth. By the way, do you find that in talking to jurors afterwards have. Uh, do the jurors go on social media and go online during the trials? Is that something they all do, or do they listen to the judge and stay away from that kind of thing?
6: I think jurors <coughs> seldom listen to the judge's instructions. I mean, they, I'm not sure they, off, they generally understand them, and if they do, that they obey them. Um, social media is really no different from a, from a judge admonishing jurors don't, don't, look, don't read any news about this, never, and don't listen to any news, This is just an era where people can directly uh, provide themselves with their own news. But the judges' instructions are still, don't listen to any outside evidence. Don't listen to anything about this case that hasn't been presented in trial.
1: Well, I hope they they go along with that. What what kind of comments do you hear about the lawyers? Uh, I I remember hearing some things from some jurors that uh, during the course of the trial, they form opinions about the lawyers and start picking on their idiosyncrasies sometimes. And... uh,
6: they definitely do
1: that. Yeah, tell me about that. Does that actually sway a jury if they hate the lawyer uh, representing one side? They may rule against that lawyer.
6: Actually, it's kind of the the reverse. In fact, we've we've, we've noted this often and often tell lawyers about it. It's not the case that jurors um, are persuaded by the lawyer they like the most. They're often persuaded. They're generally persuaded by the lawyer who makes the 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 jurors work easiest. Who can lay out the facts for them most clearly. Who can explain engineering test- testimony or scientific testimony and, and in the clearest way. So often, um, you know, they'll say, well, I really like that one guy, but I just couldn't understand him. Or sometimes, and they often are not, they're much harder, I think, on, on female attorneys than male attorneys.
1: Oh, why is they'll that? Say
6: they'll make more personal comments, like, she can afford to get a better haircut than that. Or, you know, I don't know why she wears those shoes. They don't look comfortable to me.
1: Yeah, amazing, and that uh, that kind of focus from jurors really perplexes lawyers, as to um, you know we're giving them all this juicy stuff, the the real things. Uh, we we have uh, about a, a minute to go, but real quick, do you think uh, jurors should or should not take notes? That always seems to be an issue.
6: Well, I think they should. I think, and the judge's instructions ought to be very clear as to what their goal is. It's it's very um, odd. That judge's instructions are delivered at the end of the trial instead of at the beginning. It's like uh, enrolling in a course and not knowing what you're supposed to focus on until, uh, at the, final, until the final exam, when the it would have been much better if the instructor could tell you at the outset, you know, this is what this course is about. These are the issues that matter. This is where I want you to focus and concentrate. In really computerized courtrooms, uh, every juror has a little station so they can send a message to the judge and say they want to ask an additional question, at the attorney. And so, but most, most trials still don't have, most courtrooms still don't have questions or note-taking.
1: Wow. Well, uh, to me, uh, the courtroom is still the, the last option for resolving problems here. and uh, I think it's a good thing that we have the jury system. But uh, the name of the book is called The Jury Crisis, and it's by Drury Sherrod. And, uh, Drew, thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks. I've
6: enjoyed this.
1: Thank you so much, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Good night.
6: And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset Sat and drank my fresh mint tea With nothing to do until morning